My name is Terry Foster. I'm the associate pastor here at Hillcrest Baptist Church. And if you're a visitor coming this morning, um, you came on a unique day because we're closing a, a sermon series called The Scattering. Um, this past fall, Pastor John and I um, were talking about the sermon series that we're going to be doing this year. And we worked together just thematically on those ideas. And he said to me, why don't you um, take this sermon series and you can begin it and you can end it. And at the time, that seemed pretty intimidating to me um, because preaching is something that I'm still discovering. But um, I said, yeah, I'm up for the challenge. So uh, on January 3rd, we opened this series um, called The Scattering. And it's today that we're going to close the series called The Scattering. And I want to begin by calling your attention to this piece of art that we've been using for this series. It's on the front of your bulletins. And it also should be on the screen behind me in a second. Um, we actually have some resident artists in our community that have um, come to us and said, we'd like to engage in worship in creative ways. And, and so we said, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely um, help you join in worship with your art. Um, so we've had several artists kind of along the way um, create some art pieces for our worship. And this one in particular was um, created by Roberta Gerard. And we asked her in December, we asked her to read through the book of Acts and to um, just think about creatively, how would you tell this story in an image? And this is the drawing that she prepared for us. Um, and I'll just hold mine up in case you don't have a bulletin. Um, this, this represents the scattering that happened early on in the book of Acts um, in chapter 8. And that's where we started this series. And it reflects um, what, what is happening um, in the early church there as... Uh, the center figure is, is Jesus Christ, and upon his death and resurrection, and upon the persecution that the church feels early on, um, people scatter out of the city of Jerusalem. Um, so that's the one idea that's displayed from this piece of art. But the second idea, um, and this is the idea that I want us to think about this morning, is that look at all those paths, just follow them um, on that image, and you can kind of see together that these paths, though they um, go in a lot of different directions at first, they all converge towards the top of the image. And it's kind of hard to see because the, the copy, our copier doesn't do justice to the actual original. But you can see at the very top there's a cross. And all these um, paths converge on the cross of Christ. Um, and the idea here is that though there is some dispersion, some scattering of the church early on, and there's actually some confusion early on in the church, um, God himself brings those paths together in Christ and unites people under one identity, under himself. And so that's, that's kind of the bookend that we're going to start with this morning. We want to keep this image in front of us um, as we think about um, how the Lord is working in the early church. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And we encourage you, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can go ahead and take one of those, and that can be your Bible. Um, and so I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is the verse that we started this series with on January 3rd. The series is called The Scattering, because it talks about the scattering and the dispersion of the church out of Jerusalem upon the death and crucifixion of, um, well, not the crucifixion, but the stoning of Stephen. And that stoning of Stephen spurred the, 
this persecution in the early church led by Saul, and the church was scattered. We see this in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So that's where we started. As Stephen himself was giving approval to the stoning, or I'm sorry, as Saul was giving approval to the stoning death of Stephen, um, it was under that persecution that the church spread out into Judea and Samaria. And then turn over to Acts chapter 11. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning um, on a few verses just to bring closure to this idea um, that the church was scattered early on in its history. We're in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Um, And it's in verse 19 that we see some parallel language between Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 19. And you'll see this as I read it. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Now, what do we see here? We see that there is a connection between the language that Luke, Luke is the writer of Acts. There's a connection between his language here in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and then here in eleven nineteen. 19. Um, but the interesting thing is, so in, in 8, 1, he says, the, Jerusalem, uh, the scattering originated in a city called Jerusalem, and then it was cast out into Judea and Samaria. Judea was the surrounding area of Jerusalem, and Samaria was sort of like the neighborhood next door. Um, so it was kind of common territory for that region. But here, three, three new places are identified. Um, and these three places are different. So Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, that's outward from a city. But these three things that are mentioned here, they actually converge on a city. So Phoenicia is the region north of Jerusalem. Um, it's a coastline that's over 100 miles long. And it's an area that includes many cities and towns. Um, so the church, under the persecution of Stephen, was, was um, spread out into the region of Phoenicia, north of Jerusalem. Not only that, but they went to Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. So at this point, they actually had to get on a boat and travel to an, an island called Cyprus. Um, and then the third place that's mentioned is this city of Antioch which um, if you know the shape of Cyprus, there's kind of a pointy end that points to the east. Well, that point points directly to the city of Antioch, which is on the northern coast of um, the Mediterranean. Uh, And and actually, it's in modern-day Turkey. But I just want you to understand here um, that Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria is a pretty confined region. But when we explode that and we zoom out um, to the, the regions of Phoenicia, the island of Cyprus, and the city of Antioch. Um, this is, the scale is enlarging. The city of Antioch was over 300 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And that's what we see here, um, is that there's a shift. Um, so it's scattered from one city, but it converges on the city of Antioch. It was, it was Jesus himself who, in Acts 1.8, um, he was speaking to his apostles and disciples Right before he ascended into heaven, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, 
and to the ends of the earth. And it's here in Acts chapter 11 that we actually see a partial fulfillment of that verse. And that's what I want to communicate, that, that to um, talk about the city of Antioch and the Christians in Antioch, to talk about them for a morning, means that we are talking about the ends of the earth um, at this point. And so Jesus' words are already fulfilled in Scripture. Um, not completely, but partially, when, when we talk about the end of the earth. But I want us to, um, I'm just going to go through this text quickly, verses 19 through 26, and I want to highlight contextually what's happening, but my whole goal in all of this is to sort of to point to this new identity that rises up in the church in the city of Antioch. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 11. Um, we just looked at verse 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So what do we see here? First, Luke points out that it was actually men from Cyprus and Cyrene that started to take the message of Jesus to a new group of people, to the Greeks. Your Bible may say Hellenists, but um, the NIV translates it as Greeks because there's a new audience that the message um, of the gospel is going to. And that's what's being communicated here. Um, why did it take men from Cyprus and Cyrene um, rather than men from Jerusalem to bring this new message to a new people? Um, so Cyprus, as I mentioned, was an island. Well, the Cyrene was a city that was way further to the west on the northern coast of Africa, um, almost like directly below Italy, except on the southern coast of the Mediterranean. So Cyrene is a city that is a, a distant place, and yet it's, it's men from these cities and this island that actually take the gospel to a new group of people. So far up to this point, um, the gospel has gone to uh, a guy that was headed down, an Ethiopian that was headed south along the Gaza Road, and Philip came alongside this Ethiopian and shared the gospel with him, and he received the Holy Spirit, and then he, he continued to head south into Africa that's the end of that story. We don't know what happened with that man or what happened with the gospel in his life. Um, and then last week, we heard about this town, Caesarea, which is only about 20 or 30 miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it was in Caesarea that there was a, a Roman centurion that was primed to receive the gospel. In fact, his whole household came into a room, and the apostle Peter opened up the scriptures to them and revealed Christ to this um, Gentile family that was first um, believing in Christ. But here, this, I just want to point out that this is something new. This is unprecedented for this large of a group to receive the gospel and a group that probably was both Greeks and Jews in a city like Antioch is unprecedented. And it says that a great number um, believed and that the hand of the Lord was with them. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Um, I think it's funny that uh, news of this, uh, what was happening in the city of Antioch, landed back into the city of Jerusalem. Because you have to remember here, this is over 300 miles to the south. And for news to travel that far during this time in history, it would have required someone to get on a boat, to head south, and to make a journey that would take... Um, I don't know exactly how long it would take, but it would take more than a day. I think we can confidently say that. It would take several days or a week to get this message back to Jerusalem. 
So this message comes back that in the city of Antioch, Greeks and Jews and large numbers of people are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and they're turning to the Lord. So what does the church do? The church decides to send Barnabas. Um, We have to go back to Acts chapter 4 to discover who Barnabas is in the story. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Um, You can turn there if you like, but I'm just going to read one verse. In in Acts chapter 4, this is the first introduction that we have of Barnabas. And let let me read it for you, and I'll explain it. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this was the very early on in Jerusalem. The church was gathering for the first time. They were figuring out how to do the church together. And it was actually Joseph, who was a Levite. He was a Jew. um, And he was a a believer in Christ. And yet he was from this island of Cyprus. And it was him that was an example of encouragement to the early church. He sold a piece of land. Maybe he sold a piece of land in Cyprus. And he took the proceeds from that. And he laid it at the apostles' feet as an act of generosity and encouragement for the church. And it was so, so much of an encouragement to the church that the, the apostles took it on themselves to give Joseph a new name. And they said, your name's going to be Barnabas. And Luke even had to identify to us in the text that Barnabas means son of encouragement. So that's where we first hear about Barnabas. He shows up a few other times in the, in the text, but... Um, I just want you to imagine being in Jerusalem, hearing this news that um, things are breaking wide open in the city of Antioch, and you are the key holders of the church in Jerusalem. And when you heard about Christians that were, or uh, when you heard about Samaritan Jews that were believing in Christ, you got really nervous, so you sent two apostles to go confirm that work. But now you hear this, this thing, and it's almost so far off that you... You can barely imagine that God is working in the city of Antioch. Um, So the church gathers and they decide to send Barnabas. And I find it uniquely interesting that they only send one person and they don't send an apostle. Um, And in thinking about trying to picture what is actually happening, I have to think that Barnabas was sitting at the edge of his seat when he heard this news that the gospel was starting to spread like wildfire in the city of Antioch. And I have to imagine that he stood up and he said, I'm from Cyprus. I know how to get there. I'll go. And he headed north into the city of Antioch. And we pick it up in verse 23. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Luke goes to great um, detail into how good Barnabas was. And um, I just don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss what actually happened. Barnabas showed up in the city of Antioch, and he observed... What did he observe? Look at the verse. What did he observe? He observed the grace of God at work. To observe the grace of God at work takes wisdom, and it takes discernment, and it takes vision. You know, he could have easily got there and saw that these Greeks were believing in Christ, and they were doing it all the wrong ways. They were not following the right rules. They were not following the right procedures. But he saw the grace of God at work. And I love that. And then 
And then Luke calls him a good man. And how was he good? He was good by being full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. The exact same words that Luke used to describe Stephen um, in the church. So Barnabas is a key player. And I I just have to think, um, I don't know, I I feel like Barnabas just really, he got everything right. And not only that, let's look at the next verse. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. We'll just stop there. What does that mean, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul? That means he headed north. Um, So Tarsus is where we left Saul a few chapters back. Um, And Tarsus was um, Saul's hometown. And and that's kind of where he went after he believed and he was spending some time there. Barnabas at this point could have very easily headed south to Jerusalem, made that 300-mile journey back south, walked up to the church of Jerusalem and said, you know what, guys? Yes, the grace of God is at work in the people in Antioch, and Greeks and Jews are believing together, and it's rather profound, but it's happening. And he could have, you know, he really could have left it at that. But I mean, Barnabas realized that something very unique was happening in the city of Antioch. So he headed north. To head north to Tarsus was actually a pretty short journey. He would have had to hop on a boat, sail on the Mediterranean a little bit across um, some area, and then he would be in Tarsus. And it says that he went to look for Saul. And that idea that he went to look for Saul, we shouldn't think that he just um, walked up to Tarsus, found Saul, and then quickly returned. Um, even the journey to Tarsus would have taken a day or two. And then he, I, I just, I've been thinking about this, and I have to think that Saul and Barnabas spent at least a day or two together in Tarsus. Because, I mean, uh, Saul was not ready to head south into Antioch. Um, And yet Barnabas came there, and I have to think that he just came to Saul, and he said, Saul, you are not going to believe what is happening in the city of Antioch. Greeks are believing in Christ in great numbers on mass scale. Um, And we've already seen, as we looked at the scattering, how unique this idea is, even for the Jewish Christians to accept that idea that a Greek or a Gentile would believe in Christ was profound. So it's happening on mass scale. So I just can imagine that Barnabas and Saul spent a couple of days in Tarsus, and even as they prepared for their journey south, they got on the ship together, and they started to talk about what was happening in the city of Antioch, and they started to get excited Verse 26, when he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Uh, This is just, this, so a whole year is in one sentence. So we we should note that. Um, But I want us to note not only that this is happening for a year, but what's happening. Saul and Barnabas are teaching the church in the city of Antioch. And I know that sounds um, pretty normal to us, but there was nothing normal about that. Um, we need to go back to Acts chapter 8 again just to see the profound nature of this. Go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 3, and I'll read it for you. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And when Pastor John talked about the persecution that Saul instilled in the church, 
Um, we should understand that persecution is severe. Paul, Saul and Paul, whatever he did, he did it with tenacity and with zeal. So he perse- persecuted the church with great zeal, with great anger, with great um, strength and power. So when, when it says that they put men and women in prison, when he put, we shouldn't understand that as something that was very tame or very... Um, it was a scary thing. But then we go back to Acts chapter 11, verse 26, and this is the verse that we're going to rest on this morning. When Barnabas found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So for Saul to spend this much time teaching the church, just think about in three or four chapters of Scripture, how much has changed. Um, I, I really want you to think about that. I want you to think about the profound nature of what is happening in the early church. And, I, I, and it's, and it's in, in this next phrase that, that everything hinges around this morning and in the early church. In verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Um, so the word Christian, I'll explain it in a second, but the word Christian appears three times in, in our word of God in that form. And the first time that the church, that the believers in the church were ever called Christian was right here in the city of Antioch. Um, and there's a few reasons for that, but it's, it's really cool. Um, Listen to this description of the city of Antioch, because this will help you start to imagine what the city was like. Um, In my study, I I came across this quote about the city of Antioch, and I want to just read it for you. It brings the city alive. There were various places in the ancient world which functioned as the great crossroads of culture and trade, and one of them was Antioch. Antioch in Syria is about 15 miles inland from the sea, on the river Orontes. And as any map with ancient roads and regular shipping lanes will tell you, once you were in Antioch, you could guarantee that half the people who traveled anywhere would sooner or later come by. It was a great, thriving, crowded, cosmopolitan city, and it was there that the word Christian first came into use. Antioch was one of those cities. It was like Rome. It was like Alexandria. It was like Jerusalem. It was one of the key cities um, in this region. And it was uh, a place, uh, most scholars believe that there were about 500,000 people, half a million people in the city of Antioch during this year that Saul and Barnabas were spending a year there. Um, And yet they're called Christians, um, first in Antioch. And, And so it's on this idea that I want us to think about this morning. Why were they called Christians in Antioch? but not in Jerusalem. I find that a little bit strange and a little bit odd. But the more I thought about it, the more sense it started to make. Um, Because this name Christian, if you look at the text, it wasn't a name that they gave themselves. It was a name that the people in the community started to see. They would have conversations. One Antiochian would say to another, who is that group that's meeting and what's the deal? Oh, those are the, the people that keep talking about Christ. Those are the Christ people. Those are the Christians. And you can imagine how this Christian identity 
would start to land on this group of people. But why didn't it happen in Jerusalem? I mean, why didn't the Christians, um, why were they not called Christians in Jerusalem? And, and, you know, that has to do with the meaning of the word. So the word Christ, and many of you know this, the word Christ is a Greek word that means a Greek word for the word Messiah. And Christ literally means the anointed one in Greek. So um, that's what Christ means. When we say Christian, we're adding the letters I-A-N to the word Christ. I-A-N is a Latin thing that was borrowed into the Greek. Um, And Christian, so I-A-N means you're a partisan of or you're a follower of. So Christian, in its literal meaning, it means you are a follower of the anointed one. You are a follower of the Messiah. Now, do you think that name would ever get applied in the city of Jerusalem? There's no way. Because in the city of Jerusalem, all the devout Jews would never acknowledge that you as a Christian are following the Messiah. But yet to Greeks in Antioch, who have no Jewish background, um, they will easily say, oh, those are the guys that keep talking about Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. They're followers of the Anointed One. So that's how it lands. The cool thing with what happens in Antioch is um, the church there does a pretty good job at developing this as an identity. And they do a good job, um, at least from what we've seen. Um, but But what does it mean to be called a Christian? What does it mean to you to be called a Christian? If you claim to be a Christian, what does that term imply? Beyond the literal meaning, what, what are some of the essential meanings of that word? And what does it mean in our culture? The irony is that in first century Antioch, the term Christian was a lot more clear than it is today for us. When we're called Christian, a lot of things start to rise up. Um, the, if you do a Google search for the word Christian, you'll get 358 million hits on the word itself. And a lot of that, you know, you could be saying the same things. But there's no question that there's a lot written about this word, Christian. The word Christian is something that we often use to describe um, a thing rather than a person. So we will say, um, he has Christian values, or um, that artist is a Christian, or that musician is a Christian musician. And we apply, um, or that book is a Christian book. You know, how can a book be Christian except that it, the author of it reflects Christ? But yet we, we apply that term to actual things rather than people. So I think there is this confusion around the word Christian. And I want us to um, have the opportunity together to redefine that word for ourselves and for our church. And I think that's the opportunity that we have. Um, and that's what I think we need to do. So I want to ask that question again. What does it mean for you to call yourself a Christian? And is that an identity that you shy away from because of the confusion that surrounds that word? I mean, if we're honest, there are certain situations where we become tentative and a little afraid to be identified as Christians, not because we're afraid of standing up for Christ, but because we're afraid of the confusion that surrounds that word Christian. 
So I've thought long and hard about this, and, I, and if you walk away with anything else today, I want you to walk away with this next phrase that I'm going to say, because um, I think it's really important. To be a Christian is to take the name of Christ on ourselves. To be a Christian is to bear the name of Christ. And I think when we start to unfold that, that becomes really profound. Um, and it, it actually gives us some responsibility. If, if you call yourself a Christian, if someone else calls you a Christian, then you have two responsibilities that are essential to your life. Number one, you have to recognize what a gift it is that you are called Christian. And to recognize that as a gift is to understand Christ. But beyond that, and, and this is the more profound thing, is that the life that you live has to live in such a way that you actually reflect what that name requires of your life. So that you actually are what that name Christ, Christian, expects you to be. And that's where um, the challenge is this morning. I love how Saul and Barnabas start to discover what to do over a year. And then it's out of the city of Antioch that Paul and Barnabas go out on their missionary journeys together. And Antioch becomes the center of Gentile Christianity. Um, and it's so cool to follow, th- follow this idea through the writings of Paul. Paul wrote um, a vast majority of the letters that were written to the ch- early church that we accept now as the scripture and the word of God. And um, to help us think about this identity as Christian, if we apply this name of Christ to our lives, I want to read some things for you that highlight how Paul descri- describes Christ and his qualities in, in his writings. And when I read these, I want you just to close your eyes or just to meditate on these, these ideas with the idea that these are the things, when we call ourselves Christian, these are the things that combined together we start to reflect. Paul knew the significance of what Christ meant for us and what that name meant for us. Listen to this to the way that he describes it. Paul describes Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he called him peace, light and accessible, in whom God dwells, and sanctification and redemption, and great high priest and Passover, and a proportion of souls, and the brightness of glory, and the image of substance, and the maker of the world, our spiritual food, our spiritual drink, our spiritual rock, water, and foundation of faith, cornerstone, and an image of the invisible God, and the great God, and the head of the body of the church, and firstborn over every creature, and firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, and firstborn from the dead, and firstborn from among many brothers, and mediator between God and humanity, and only begotten Son, and crowned with glory, and Lord of glory, and beginning of being. And speaking of Christ, who is the beginning, he said that Christ is the King of justice, the King of peace, and an effable King of all, and having the power of the kingdom. And Christ went on to say other things that were so profound that they're even difficult to put into words and images. But when we put all of these images of Christ next to each other, And when we try to put that name onto our lives, that's when the teaching becomes heavy. 
and when the identity of Christian starts to become what at first might appear to be a heavy burden. Um, yet I just want to give you the freedom to approach Christ um, freely because in thinking about this, I mean, how do I identify as a Christian? It's been a challenge for me um, to walk this this past week. Um, even on Thursday, I want to tell you a story because I was like, what does it mean to carry my Christian identity? And I forgot my wallet on Thursday. Um, and I, I was in such a rush, I couldn't turn back because I had a few meetings to go to and a few things to do. And um, I underestimated the, uh, the impact that forgetting my wallet would have on my day. And I ended up going to a breakfast where there was that, fortunately, so I was meeting some people I knew and I knew the people that ran the place, and they put it on my tab, so I got through that. Um, and then I came to work and did a few other things. But then I was like, you know what? I'm trying to figure out what this Christian identity is. I want to use this example of me forgetting my wallet as something just to kind of discover what identity means. So rather than just staying in my office and skipping lunch, I was like, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to see if I can get lunch without my wallet and without my identity. Um, so I went out to my car. I had $3.50 in quarters in my car. And I thought, well, what can I get for $3.50? So I decided to go to Pat's Pizzeria. Because um, I, you know, I thought pizza is something that you can get you know, at a fair price in our town. So um, I went into Pat's, and I, and I started to look at the menu. And of course, they have this lunch value menu that, that started to entice me. And I could have just you know, gone and gotten a slice of pizza and a cup of water and, and given them you know, my quarters and been happy. But I had to be all ambitious. So I looked at the value menu and I saw, okay, there's a meal for $3.99. You get two slices of pizza and a, and a Coke. And I was like, I'm going to shoot for that. <laughs> so I, I went up to the counter and I just told the guy, I was like, look, I know this sounds like one of those likely stories, but I really did forget my wallet. I had $3.50 in quarters in my car. I was like, is there any way I could get the value menu for $3.99 um, you know, for that? And, and he was like, yeah, definitely. That's, that's cool. And um, so I was, I was pretty proud of myself. But, but it was cool because um, I actually had this, um, I had to sort of identify myself and sort of give a little bit more feedback of who I was as a person. I had to start to explain that, like, I'm good for 50 cents. You can trust me. This is a trustworthy story. I'm not making this up just to get, like, a free meal. Um, and, and it was cool because the guy received that, and I could tell he started to, like, actually... We, we interacted more because of that conversation. And, you know, even as I was eating lunch, we kind of talked a little bit, and, and he was really cool about it. But, but I, even just forgetting my license and my credit cards and my cash, even that had a profound influence on my identity as a person in this community. And then I started thinking, man, how much more should our Christian identity be something that profoundly influences our lives? Um, and that's where I want to end this morning, just with that challenge, that you as a Christian, you put the name of Christ on your life, and when you put that name of Christ on your life, um, you better be sure that the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you practice yourself in community, that it actually reflects what that name requires of you.